Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Tell me, does this sound like you or someone you may know? A million phone calls, a million checking online for sites, getting up at four in the morning to check the sites, staying up till midnight to check the sites. This is the daily routine for perhaps tens of thousands of people, or maybe more, who are engaged in the exhausting exercise of hoping to land a COVID vaccine appointment in the New York, New Jersey area these days. It is a first-come, first-served that feels very chaotic and I think runs the risk of exacerbating existing disparities. This week on 880 In-Depth. We'll tell you the stories of people who've taken up the cause of others and have built websites, created Facebook group pages and Twitter sites to help connect people in our area with available COVID vaccine appointments. I'm not really surprised that it's manifested this way, but of course it shouldn't, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't yeah. be this hard. Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Tim Sheld, and it wasn't too long ago that a big concern in the pandemic fight was about people who were not comfortable getting COVID vaccines. While that may still be an issue for some, the daily focus these days is finding vaccine appointments for the scores who are desperate to get the shots. The secret? Knowing just where to look. My daughter came to me yesterday and said, listen, we can go to get our, you know, uh, vaccines tomorrow. I said, where? And she told me, and I said, let's go. And it was easy to do, one, two, three. And where are many people finding these open appointment slots? Social media, of course. Facebook groups like New Jersey COVID vaccine sites or Helping NYC Get Vaccinated have become a clearinghouse of information. On Twitter, one of the most popular sites for people in New Jersey is called Vax updates, V-A-X-X updates. I got that tip from my wife and we started seeing really valuable information posted there. Who's behind it and why? We got in touch with the creator and driver of that Twitter site that has 25,000 followers and counting. Our Peter Haskell spoke to a man we will refer to as B. He wanted to remain anonymous and you will hear why in our interview. Right. So effectively, um, it's on Twitter only. Uh, when okay. I started this process a little bit, yeah, a little bit before January 24th, I think, which is the first day of the Twitter account, um, I was on Reddit 
and I was trying to create an email thread there. Uh, and I found that actually sending out bulk mass emails using um, like a personal email account or like a, like a Gmail uh, create a lot of uh, spam issues and people weren't getting the announcements fast enough, um, kind of like a bleeding edge uh, style. So I ended up moving into Twitter and I had no idea if it was going to be successful or not, to be honest. And kind of the growth that it's had over the past, uh, I guess, coming on four weeks now or, or well, three weeks uh, has been pretty exponential to a degree. So explain if you could, what exactly is this Twitter account? It's C19Vax Updates. What is it? What exactly is it? Well, it's, it's a Twitter account to help eligible New Jersey residents and workers uh, secure appointments for the COVID vaccine. Um, it, it, essentially, it's been so difficult for anyone 65 plus, uh, those who are technologically challenged to uh, actually set up in a vaccine appointment. You know, I went through this with my parents um, who are over 65 and eligible for the vaccine. And the stress that they had just trying to set the whole process up was just wild. And for those people that don't have, again, the, the technological um, means or kind of mindset, it's, it's not, the system is stacked against them to a degree, right? Um, this, this process has um, seldom been a easy rollout, right? Any sort of a, a major health reform or any sort of major health project has never been an easy rollout, and obviously this is a case in point. So essentially the Twitter feed is to help those and have their family members who are, you know, in the Twitterverse or using tech um, able to kind of get them on, either get their parents onto Twitter and have the notifications turned on or have the family members or friends or neighbors help set them up um, for them. You've described the difficulties so many people have had. What made you decide, hey, I'm going to try to come up with this, this Twitter account to direct people in the right direction? And how did you go about it? Well, I would say, uh, first of all, just disclaimer, I'm just, just an out-of-work Broadway actor who uh, knows nothing about healthcare per se. I, you know, I, I read the news. And um, I happen to like video games and computers and technology. Um, but uh, when I saw, again, you know, the struggle that my parents were having um, and also other friends and, and family members, uh, you know, be it aunts and uncles, um, you know, my, my friends, grandparents, um, you know, my, my wife's parents, uh, finding out how difficult of the process it was, it really helped um, kind of like focus what I wanted this whole page to be. And again, I, I've never used ask me at any point in my life would I ever have been creating a social media platform or page to assist get, getting people vaccinated during a pandemic and well I mean you'd have a better chance of winning a 10 billion dollar lottery so this is not about technology I guess it's just a matter of digging and digging and digging yeah, yeah, sure so you know I've, I've used kind of like the way that this is operated right the, the way that I've been able to get all this information is kind of through the, um, you know, if you backdate uh, into early, you know, say September, uh, um, October, November, there, there's a, a, you know, I was trying to get a graphics card for my computer. And uh, there's a lot of different websites that were help you, help you get that. And then it moved into um, PlayStations um, and Xboxes. And I had a bunch of friends that were looking for them. And I was able to kind of utilize this technology uh, to create opportunity for them to get these uh, items, right? These hard to get items. And then, you know, move forward from there, the evolution of the whole process now has turned into 
getting um, vaccine appointments set up for people that actually need it because this is, you know, effectively a a life or death situation for a lot of people. You know, COVID, it's so random. We don't know what direction it's going to go, but I don't think the majority of people want to take that risk. And, you know, now that I, this account has been created and um, there have been, I guess when I was around 10,000 followers, we had, I took a poll. I, I, I like to try to do analytics and kind of see where the numbers are at. Um, and uh, we ended up having about 1,500, over 1,500 appointments um, that were set up just from the Twitter feed alone, which is pretty great, you know. And for people that have been very appreciative because they know how confusing this process is. A year after the arrival of COVID-19 in America, and we know a lot more about the virus today. What remains a bit of a mystery, though, is how and why some COVID patients still suffer weeks and months after recovery. Body aches, the headache, um, the dizziness, the loss of sense of taste and smell, the mind fog. The, there were, you know, dozens of symptoms that just kind of came in waves. Today, we know it as post-COVID syndrome. And it is a very real thing for hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of Americans and their families. We figured that one of us would probably get it, but we had no idea it would go on for almost a full year. And what makes it a deeper mystery is how every patient seems to be different. Every time I meet a patient, I learn learn something new. Everyone seems to sort of have their unique, a unique like flavor of post-COVID. So tell me what... um what you're up to in terms of your activity level, your physical abilities now. Yeah, so um, my physical abilities are much better. Um, I can cook, I can clean, I can do stuff around. One of the patients Dr. Bosco saw this week is Caitlin Barber. Oh, you can walk down the stairs. Yep. That's, that's, that's yep. The stairs are yeah. fine. Her story is hope for COVID long haulers who don't yet see an end to their nightmare. Caitlin was a healthy 27-year-old when she caught the virus last March, likely from the nursing home she worked at as a dietitian. Caitlin did get better within a few weeks, but then got leveled by wave after wave of post-COVID syndrome symptoms. Worse than that, many of the healthcare professionals she sought answers from doubted her story. They simply couldn't understand what was happening to this healthy 27-year-old. By fall, Caitlin couldn't even walk. She told her story to our Peter Haskell. So now I'm feeling pretty good. Um, It's been almost a year um, of my COVID journey, and it's been quite a year, but um, I'm slowly recovering and um, making a lot of progress. Give us a sense as to what you were up against. A lot. Um, you know, my husband and I, there, we went many, many months without hope um, that I would ever get better. Um, you know, COVID, COVID really took my body and did a, did a number on it. And um, it was, it's a very hard virus to deal with. And, you know, a lot of odds were against me. Um, I was pretty much bed bound at the worst. I needed three people to shower me. So, the odds were against me, um, but I have incredible medical providers down here in New York City, and that's why I'm better. When did you get COVID, and how much how much time did it take to you got these post-COVID symptoms? Yeah, I got COVID. Um, my symptoms started March 31st, 2020, 
so last year almost um, a year ago and you know my initial COVID wasn't too bad I had um, you know initial COVID reaction wasn't too bad and the the post COVID symptoms started um, right when I tried to go back to work post COVID um, that I tried to go back for work to work for a couple days and the symptoms came back much worse and um, got progressively worse for the next six months so um, it w until I got the proper treatment. What kind of symptoms did you have? When I had COVID, I started out, my first symptom was that I was tired, um, you know, and then I had headache, um, body aches, you know, your typical, I only had your typical COVID um, mild case. Um, it wasn't until after that the symptoms just got much worse. Um, I was exhausted to the point where I, I couldn't get off the couch, and that was the biggest issue, along with um, the body aches, the headache, um, the dizziness, the loss of sense of taste and smell, the mind fog. The there were you know dozens of symptoms that just kind of came in waves, and it, a lot of it was just trying to manage each individual symptom until I could get the proper help doing that. What did your doctors at home say? My doctors at home said um, it was all in my head. Um, it was, you know, at, at this point, COVID was a two-week virus. And, you know, and it's, you know, a mix of different things. And COVID was only a two-week virus. So how could a healthy 27, you know, I was 27 at the time. How could a healthy 27-year-old be sick months later? You know, and so at that point, we didn't know a lot about the virus. We didn't know about long haulers. We didn't know about any of this. Um, and they told me to ride it out, and we were hoping it would just go away. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case. It's clear you were suffering, and you've got doctors saying it's in your head. What was that like for you? It was terrible. I cried myself to sleep every night. Um, I, I knew that there was something wrong. I did not, I, that I was not right. There's something wrong in my body. There's, you know, I was like an Energizer bunny. I, I was constant moving and now I can't get off the couch. Physically for you, how bad did it get? Physically, it was very bad. Um, uh, my husband and I had to move out of our apartment and move in with our in-laws. Um, I, I couldn't stand up. I couldn't, I couldn't move my arms. My husband was carrying me to the bathroom. Um, at one point I needed three people to shower me. Um, I couldn't even stand up on my own without my heart rate just going off the charts. And um, so f when physically, when to be so debilitated, you know, when you were so free before, it's, you feel like you're trapped in your body. When did things start to turn? Well, things started to turn for the worst after COVID until um, about six months in, and they actually started to turn around um, at, the, at about the six month mark. That's when things kind of, I got progressively worse for about the first six months that I had COVID. Um, and then I was lucky enough to get into the Mount Sinai's post-COVID center. When I got into the post-COVID center, things immediately started to turn around. Um, with proper treatment and you know the proper medical providers it it made a world of difference what did they do for you they set up a whole program in my case um, I worked very closely with a cardiologist and um, my main doctor at the post-covid center and 
they came up with a whole plan of breath work, physical therapy, compression stockings, salt and fluids. Um, you know, there was a whole host of interventions and treatments, and they, and it works. <laughs> it worked. But the journey was long and sometimes very dark. Caitlin's husband, David, shared his story with Peter. It, it was scary. It was frustrating. I mean, we, we had a front row seat and lived the, the COVID-19 pandemic. What was it like to live through the worst pandemic in our history? What lessons can we learn walking in the footsteps of those who lived through the great influenza pandemic of 1918? This week on 880 In-Depth, we take a trip through time. What did we learn from the great flu pandemic? And what did we fail to learn? Frankly, there are hundreds of thousands of Americans who should be alive, who are dead, because of messaging problems. Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Tim Scheld. Two facts about the 1918 Great Influenza Pandemic stand out to me. More people died from that flu outbreak around the world than were killed in all of World War I. And that one year of death in our country, 1918, lowered the average life expectancy by 12 years. Wow. 12 years. In just a bit, we'll hear the thoughts of how that pandemic relates to the one we're living through today with author and professor John M. Barry. But first, we wanted to get a better feel of what it was like living in New York a hundred years ago. Just how the great waves of flu back then affected society. Come with us to the Lower East Side of Manhattan. 97 Orchard Street to be exact, the Tenement Museum, today a National Historic Landmark which tells the story of American immigrants who built the country we live in today. Our tour guide up the tight winding stairs of this five-story brick building is David Favolaro. Senior Director of Curatorial Affairs for the Tenement Museum. He took our Peter Haskell on the tour. It was in 1919. Yes, men and women were dying. Do you want to walk up the stairs? Yeah, sure, sure. Give it a nice hard walk. Uh, you know, I mean, this was um, a typical building on the Lower East Side, home to working class immigrants, mostly from Eastern Europe, Ashkenazi Jews from Eastern Europe who had arrived, you know, over the, the several preceding decades, beginning in, say, uh, the 1880s or 1890s, and, and really settling here in a building like this as a kind of first, first home. 
but this is also by the point in time, right by the early 20th century, by the 19-teens, a 50-year-old building uh, that had been inhabited by thousands of, um, of newcomers from, uh, from Europe. As we get ready to mark the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terror attacks in our city, we wanted to take an in-depth look at the lasting legacy of that dark day, our city's health. More people have now died from their 9-11 illnesses since 9-11 than died on 9-11. Anyone who was there that day and survived the collapse of the Twin Towers, those who worked down there, went to school in the area, or lived in the neighborhood, knew how bad it was. And those who worked on the pile in the weeks and months after 9-11, they saw it up close. As they moved things in that pile, they, the pile was on fire for, for weeks afterwards. And the, the, it had a chimney effect. If you opened up a hole and the oxygen you'd get in to, by moving something out of the way, the dust flew up in your face. And it was burning ash. It was like standing over an incinerator with a really, really toxic blend of stuff. This week on 880 In-Depth, killer cancers from the World Trade Center dust and smoke and the heroic efforts to support those still affected by it today. Plus, the hidden pain of 9-11 that is still very much a concern. The mental health uh, consequences of the World Trade Center attack were enormous. Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Tim Scheld. In order to help understand the health impact of 9-11 20 years later, you need to go back to 2001 and remember the conditions. This is an interview I conducted days after the attacks on Greenwich Street in a neighborhood ripe with acrid smoke just blocks north of the burning pile. And you live right on the edge here. I mean, what's, yeah. what's it, what do you see in front of you, first of all? Well... It's getting worse again. Uh, it was better this morning. It seems the fire doesn't seem to ever stop, and the putrid smell is getting worse again. It was good for a couple of hours this morning, and now I was resistant to wear a mask, and I just was happy to find one just now at the Salvation Army. And I think it's... I wish they would tell us a little more about the actual conditions of the air. I think the public, at least the public living down here, should be alerted to the asbestos content and the chemical and electric fire damage that's done to the air. I know they don't want to cause panic, right? Then if they would actually tell us what the air condition is right now, uh, they probably would cause a huge panic downtown, and they can't handle that. Nobody can blame them for that. It was in those early days that a local group of medical experts recognized the exact same thing. It was literally the birth of what is today the World Trade Center Health Program, which provides medical monitoring and treatment of 9-11 related conditions for first responders and survivors. The story is told to us by Dr. Michael Crane, medical director of the World Trade Center's Health Program at Mount Sinai. There's a story that I've heard, I was not there, but I was told that um, just like I couldn't get into the city um, on 9-11, uh, that at the time of the attack, because everything had shut down, uh, a group of physicians at Mount Sinai also couldn't get in, and they they met in a, somebody's house up in Westchester, and 
it is said that that group of doctors plotted out the entire course that they would see in the population, including cancer, including post-traumatic stress, and pretty much outlined the program or the needs of the program as they are today. So there's some really, some very far-sighted physicians involved, and uh, um, it was pretty, it was pretty certain that things like asthma and post-traumatic stress uh, were going to be very prominent, and cancer because of the toxins released uh, and the and the burning of those toxins uh, on, on 9/11. Today, over 80,000 first responders from 9/11 are signed up for the World Trade Center Health Program. Remarkable when you consider that it's estimated that 90,000 first responders worked at Ground Zero in the weeks and months after the attacks. Medical experts have learned a lot over the past 20 years. We wanted to hear more. WCBS reporter Peter Haskell sat down with Dr. Michael Crane. What was it about the air downtown around that site that has created all these problems? Yes, um, the collapse of the towers um, by the force of the and the impact of the plane and the fires that started um, produced, as as you recall, the dust cloud, and you remember probably from being down there and, and also from seeing the photographs that people who were down there at the time of the collapse, even blocks away, were covered in dust. They looked like they had been, had a bucket of plaster. When it happened 40 years ago, it seemed like a crime right out of a movie script. And U.S. National Bank in the mall, somebody shot at an armored car. And it got a guy wounded and somebody's been hit. Requesting an ambulance there. Step it up, please. It didn't sound like shot. It sounded like those boards right there, they fell down or something. And I saw the um, Brinks truck sitting there with um, three bullet holes through the windshield. In a moment, a Brinks guard was dead, and a gang of heavily armed gunmen was making its getaway. Naya police officers O'Grady, Keenan, and Brown attempted to stop one of the vehicles, which was a U-Haul van containing the fleeing gunmen. The gunmen fired upon the officers with automatic weapons. The people that perpetrated this crime were people that had aspirations to overthrow the government of the United States. And it wasn't just a simple bank robbery that took place here that day. It took the lives of these uh, brave men. This week on 880 In-Depth, we will revisit the Rockland County Brinks armored car robbery from 1981. And we will look at how it has rekindled the debate today over parole in New York, should those responsible for the murder of police officers ever get out of jail? David Gilbert doesn't deserve a second chance to get out of prison. The day that my father and Sergeant Edward O'Grady and Officer Waverly Brown get a second chance to walk out of their graves is the day that David Gilbert should get out of prison. Brinks defendant David Gilbert could actually walk out of prison soon. A parole board is set to decide any day. We speak to the District Attorney of San Francisco about this case and the idea of parole and victims' rights. Why the DA in San Francisco? He is the son of David Gilbert. I know that nothing will ever make their families whole and nothing will ever undo the harm that they have suffered, but I hope that they can find closure. And I hope that as every major religion on this planet preaches, forgiveness is a fundamental quality that we all have to embrace and find ways to make acceptance for in our lives.
Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Tim Sheld. The Rockland County Brinks case is an amazing story for so many reasons. It's also a personal one. All about 10 feet away from me, the body of a Brinks guard that was killed in the shootout. That was me 40 years ago, working as a local reporter at the local station in Rockland, WRKL. Some of the audio you will hear coming up comes from old tape that I've saved all these years. But this is more than just a look back in time. The Brinks case also shines a light on parole in New York and the idea that someone who could have taken part in such a terrible crime could actually walk free. And it seems to me very clear that the emphasis should be on who the person is who's sitting before the board today. In 1981, David Gilbert and Kathy Boudin had a 14-month-old son. They left him with a babysitter as they went on the Brinks job that day, and they never came back. Today, that son is the elected district attorney of San Francisco. Chase Boudin was a criminal defender who won a close election on a platform of fighting for victims' rights. We spoke this week as Rockland was marking the 40th anniversary of the Brinks case. Chase Boudin and his wife just had a newborn son six weeks ago. We started the conversation there. It's emotional for lots of reasons. Being a new father is the greatest gift you could imagine. And it, of course, uh, is a stark reminder of the really terrible choices my father made shortly after my own birth and the consequences not only for him uh, and for me, but of course, uh, more tragically, more irreparably harming three families and an entire community that suffered as a result of that crime. And I think about the last 40 years that I've spent visiting him in prison. Um, and I really know that there's, there's absolutely nothing that can be done at this stage to undo the harm that he caused. But I desperately hope that my son doesn't have to meet his grandfather in a prison visiting room. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.